Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Joel, good evening. A new salutation for us. <laughs> yes, we're on the other side of the big spring holidays. We made it. We did, and we, we even made recording our podcast this week, which seemed like it almost wasn't going to happen, but uh, thankfully for your flexibility and the little tech issues, uh, we're here. That's right. Between a, a bad cough and a bad internet connection, we're, we're, we've battled through and maybe we'll make it. Can you imagine having it, having both at the same time? That would be bad. It, it as clergy in a year of Zoom worship, yes, a, a coffin, <laughs> bad internet would just shut us down entirely. <laughs> it's like we're done. We're done. We surrender. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> and maybe that points us to where we're uh, thinking about chatting today. Uh, we're aware that that our congregants very seldom know what it's like behind the curtain for clergy. Uh, so we want to let you peek behind the curtain for a minute and uh, and wonder, well, we're going to wonder with each other out loud and reveal what's going on behind the scenes and uh, give our congregants and others uh, a view of what it's like being clergy. Yes. So where, yes. where, where would you like to start? There, there's so there's so many thoughts. So Eric, what is the biggest surprise for you once you became a rabbi? You were once a student of or a worshiper with. Uh, near rabbis, and then you were one. What changed? And still am, <laughs> just to make sure. <laughs> yes. Still am, and happy to be one. Um, you know that's that's interesting. I don't know if anything changed per se. It, you know, I think sometimes of uh, major life events. It, they often have a discrete time where something's official, like an officiant declaring. You know, uh, two spouses married, for example. But do they feel differently at literally one second after that as opposed to one second before that? And, you know, for me, um, turning in my thesis was was as big of a kind of life event, kind of going up the steps of journeying than the my ordination itself, although that certainly was an unbelievable moment that I will never forget um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, or more, more to the point, an unbelievable weekend. Uh, but I don't know if I necessarily felt different, but I do know because people have told me this and I ask people and, and I, I, I'm guessing it's similar for you, that others saw me differently. Hmm. Oh, you're a rabbi now. I can't tell this joke or yeah. I shouldn't drink too much in front of the rabbi, you know, that sort of thing. So whereas I didn't necessarily feel different because for me, it was a five, actually six year gradual move through rabbinical school of small, small changes. And all of a sudden at the end, I'm a rabbi. Yes, officially, but nothing huge changed. But for other people, I think that perception did change somewhat. Agreed. I we had a uh, 
So you know, remember, I was an engineer. I went through sales. I went through marketing, and I was traveling around marketing and selling things. Uh, and we went to church and took our boys there. And Jill was a a deacon there, ordained as a deacon at that church after she had already been ordained as an elder in the Presbyterian Church. Both of those are special ordinations, but. Um, we had a group of six couples with children in the church, and we hung out with one another. And sometimes we'd drop our kids off at the church, and the church would take care of them, and we would go out with one another. And other times we would uh, kind of share babysitting with one another and do like three and threes, or it was a cool way just to get to know one another. And one of the guys in that group, I remember telling that group that I was applying to seminary that I was going to be quitting my job and and going to seminary to become a pastor. And and he didn't mean anything by it. He but he just looked at me and said, "I can't even look at you the same anymore." And that phrase, I didn't realize what that phrase meant at the time or what it was going to mean, but it was very anticipatory of the reality of becoming a pastor in America. Uh, people do look at you differently. And and I'll even say they they see you differently. They expect things differently of you. They act differently near you or around you. Um, and they expect you to act differently than a normal human being <laughs> might. Uh, and I, I still find that to be a major challenge. I, I, I resist it sometimes. But when I do, when I don't remember it's true, I, it, it, I'm going to get in trouble. I better remember that people do see me, the, the office of pastor, and me sitting in that chair differently, and I better just accept that. I have a practical example of that. Uh, that happened a few years ago, and I'm sure for some congregants and some who may be listening, this this is still an issue. And, and I don't mean to dredge up old wounds, but it, but it's to this. So you know, I, I, you know this as my friend having eaten out with me, but I do not keep kosher. Um, I certainly don't brag about being kosher. I'm not proud of not keeping kosher. Some rabbis do those sorts of things. But I just simply don't keep kosher. And I would like to think that I've thought deeply about it and have chosen not to, et cetera, et cetera. There are some congregants for whom that is a real problem. And I get it. I, it doesn't mean I'm going to keep kosher, but I do understand. And even though some of those congregants themselves don't keep kosher, their feeling is, but you're the rabbi. And if there's one thing or, you know, one, something in a small panoply of things that people know about Jews, it's that they don't eat pork. And so they're going to meet Rabbi Eric Linder, who may eat pork, which I wouldn't if I was out to dinner with kind of mixed company, especially in a professional setting. I wouldn't. Um, but the, the point still stands. And that's an example, I think, of what you're or what we're talking about, about this kind of perception. And it, one of the things I struggle with, and I, I don't use the word fun frivolously. I, I mean it as something I, I genuinely enjoy because it involves relationships and it involves people. But one of the things I very much enjoy thinking about and kind of coming to terms with is where is it appropriate and good for me to adhere 
to others' expectations? And where is it good for me not to? And that's kind of a, that is a tricky thing. It depends on context, situation, relationship, place, all those things. Yeah, so that is the dance. If let's say you have 30 or 40 friends together and there's a pretty wide spectrum of thoughts, beliefs, opinions on social, political, religious issues, but you're friends and you've debated some of those before and and you've wondered about it and you've pushed and pulled on each other and you've ribbed each other on Facebook or whatever, but you're friends and you're connected to one another. I've never seen somebody just totally walk away from a friend, but I have now seen people who like me and enjoy me and they disagree with me on a few things. But if I happen to accidentally hit their special button, it's like a deal breaker. And it's okay if their best friend thinks differently or votes differently. It's okay if their spouse thinks differently or votes differently. It's okay if their brother or sister or coworker has a different political or social topical opinion. But if they hear and figure out, wow, my pastor and I disagree on this thing that's really important to me, I watch people struggle to stay connected to both the church and to me as their pastor because of a, a disagreement there. And and it's very strange to me. I'm I'm not accustomed to that. I'm accustomed to my best friends, the ones who know me the best, which I think of church members as, as potentially being, the ones that we can really be honest with one another. And we can understand why we disagree about certain things. But I, I have to be very careful, not because um, I don't love the position that I'm taking on certain things, and not because I'm not still open to moving based off what they tell me. But I just have learned that if if some people figure out where I'd lean on certain issues, they will give up on me and the whole church. Uh, and they wouldn't do that if I was their friend or if I was on the board beside them. But if I'm the pastor, that's a deal breaker for people. And I don't know if that's true for you, but it's it's a heartbreaker. It is. Thankfully, um, and we've kind of alluded to this in other episodes where we've gotten political, you know, the, the most Reformed Jews are similarly aligned to where I am. And I also don't consider myself like the social justice warrior rabbi. That doesn't mean that I don't care about those issues. Um, but I, but if, you know, if someone were to ask, describe Eric Linder's sermons, I don't think that would be the, you know, in the first thing people would say. Um, but it has happened at times and it's of course hurtful and sad. And, you know, to a certain degree with, with some of, with some of these members, now former members, they're, you almost feel bad for them because they're, it's almost like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Like they, they had all of these wonderful relationships, both apart and aside from me. So, and they're kind of losing that along with, with, uh, with the rest of what Temple gives. I want to ask you a question. Um, 
loosely based off what you just talked about because it's something I think every clergy thinks about or even any, you know, any supervisor, anyone where there is some sort of dynamic of leadership or power. And that's, can you be friends with your congregants? Yeah, I think our seminary tells us the truth about how people in our culture view pastors, meaning that we are going to struggle to ever get through that cultural identity of pastor being different to somebody that can really be friends. I think you can have friend-like relationships with people. But the, the other thing I realize is I am more on guard with people with whom I am a pastor. And, and I have to leak out pieces of me kind of slowly and test the waters. And I, I do that slower with members of my church than I do with possible friends uh, or old friends even. So that's, that's a reality that I've, I've been told to practice and that I've learned is wise to practice. Sure. You know, I'm not too into titles and names, you know, in terms of I must be referred to as Rabbi Linder and, you know, and things like that. But there is a congregant who um, I consider myself very close with. And this person is very deliberate that when we are, you know, in friend mode, it's Eric. And when it's temple business, it's Rabbi. And when I call... Sometimes I'll call this person and I'll say it's Eric or it's Rabbi, depending on circumstance. <laughs> and th- this is also after seven, eight, eight years now. I-, I wasn't like this with this person after year one. Be, to some degree, as your friend, be patient with yourself. Um, because I know that when you left Oconee, there, there were a lot more than six or seven that you felt close to. Yes. Um, and that felt close to you, of course. Well, and those, um, I won't know who which ones are my friends from there until later? Like I, I just left a year ago, but the question will be, which of those relationships will hold on? Where will we still? That's right. And then you'll start to see, oh, okay, that some of those are still, they made it, right? right? They, they got through the pastor or former pastor relationship to the friend relationship. And that'll be yeah. a surprise, I, I hope. You know, I, I, I think you're right that you have to kind of test test the waters because, again, I'm not going to just jump in with a political opinion on something the way I might with a casual acquaintance with a congregant. And at the end of the day, um, my relationship to them as their rabbi is the most important. What else is unique about being clergy, being religious leadership? How, how else do you think this role is uniquely uh, differentiated the, from other the roles? First, the first thing that comes to mind is one of governance in that my and your supervisors, and, and I don't mean this in any negative way, it, it, it's just factual. They have no idea what it's like to be clergy. They're not trained to be clergy. Very often, they're not necessarily deeply religiously educated. And again, that that is nothing bad. That's just the reality of the situation. Um, But if you think of other professions, even though in, in all sorts of jobs, you know, like Tim Cook doesn't doesn't necessarily know what the secretary of, you know, of a small team at Apple does. But the but. 
there's a there there's still a common ground of understanding whereas uh th- that is a big gap i think yeah it it feels like it, when i was in the corporate world i knew who my direct report was so uh, if if somebody in another department or even one of my peers had a different opinion about what i should be doing i could get clarity very easily just by going to my boss um if i was in engineering the engineering manager. If I was in marketing, the VP of marketing. I could figure out, all right, look, there's some options here. What do you want me to do? I do sometimes feel like I have hundreds of bosses and and they all have varying opinions of what I should be doing and not be doing, how much time I should spend preparing for worship or making sure I'm ready for the next meeting or uh, getting getting ready for the class I'm about to lead and teach. Uh, they have different expectations of of how long it will take me to reply to a phone call or a, an email. Um, and of course, none of them think that there's also another hundred of them. <laughs> right. In other words, it, it, they're the only ones asking you anything. So of course you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> What else surprises you that that you didn't anticipate or that you you think listeners would not would be surprised to hear? I think I think listeners would be surprised to know and this again not a negative. But when I first became a rabbi, I was ve- I mean now I'm totally used to it, but um I was surprised at what I thought was how little I taught. You know, there were there maybe a few classes a week, certainly preaching on every Shabbat, religious school, tutoring bar and bat mitzvah kids. But I mean, I, you know, you think of you go to seminary for five, six years, spend a year in Israel, do, uh, um, uh, I'm losing the word. What, what, not a dissertation, but a thesis. Sheesh. <laughs> uh, doing a thesis, doing all of these things. And, there's there's so much administration <laughs> there. I mean, th- th- there's so many emails and thinking about leadership and committees. And and I am not um, denying the importance of those. I just didn't coming out of rabbinical school. There was very little understanding of that sort of of how that element worked or didn't work and certainly interacted with each other. And, uh, you know, unless you grew up with a uh, rabbi in the family or someone who was a, you know, worked in, in professional, in a professional, in a synagogue as a professional, you know, seminaries, like we're learning Torah, we're learning Hebrew, theology, all these things. We're not learning how to work with committees and, and what an average day, as if there is an average day, looks like. And so that's been the biggest surprise. But at I've kind of come back around. Um, I call it second naivete. You call it something else. I like that. That's we, good. Yeah. But what did you call it? It was orientation, episode... disorientation, reorientation. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Where I, I've come back. See, I, I listened to you. <laughs> <laughs> I've come back and those things too are teaching Torah or they can be. And so when I give, for example, um, 
my board report, which is different than a, a prayer. It, I try to infuse kind of a Jewish teaching or um, ideal in there. Um, and just like, I mean, it, it's in anything. It, it's part and parcel of, I think, who we are. And so it, it's not, I, I now don't look at that as, oh, I'm going to do that so I can get to what's meaningful. But actually, that is what's meaningful. Yeah, I I am surprised, and maybe the members would be as well, at how much of how much time goes to just doing the logistics and administrative, and especially I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but I I have to say this, especially this year. I mean, I had a conversation with a, a choir member uh, last week. Um, who is having some challenges uploading one of her videos to the shared drive that our choir is making a montage of songs. And I helped her figure it out on Dropbox. And, 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 and I, I, you know, I was thinking, you know, she's having a problem with this one file and gets the frustration of that. This, this has become my life this year, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I am a, a, a long time techie. And I try to stay not on the the uh, cutting edge, but maybe the bleeding edge somewhere up there, or the second tier, whichever one of those it would be. Uh, I want to be the second tier of almost all technology. And I don't mind learning. I'm not afraid of it. Let's go. We'll try. But I am realizing that church needs technology, and a lot of church folk hate technology, especially in church. And so if I am good at tech and I depend on it and I need it and it helps me do my job and it helps me have more time for teaching and and preparation, the tech will actually get in the way of my relationship with some of my leaders, with some of the members. Uh, I had I just suggested that somebody look at a new piece of software we're using to keep our church directory going. And it, it freaked her out so much. She's like, I just want to quit this committee. I just, I don't want to do it. I, <laughs> right. And this was over, <laughs> over a little thing. It's a little thing, but you realize that the invitation to try something to some people from the pastor comes with all kinds of weight and guilt because it came from the pastor. And, and I don't intend it that way. It's just that, no, it's not a big deal. Just try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we'll print you one in paper. No biggie. And I say that 17 times with a big old smile on my face. But when she tries it and it doesn't work, the frustration is 50 times higher than it would be if it just came from her grandson or right. a friend. It came from me, the pastor, and she doesn't want to disappoint me. So she's she'll set it down. And I just am aware that that's another one of those weird things of being clergy. Well, another speaking of weird things. Now we're just kind of bouncing off each other, but Dude, I, yeah, I, I back forth, back fun. forth. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. It is, um, you know, it, this certainly was more awkward for me, you know, two years out as a rabbi as opposed to fifteen. But even now, occasionally, when someone comes to see me for um, what I'll call spiritual care, so you know, they're not in an acute crisis necessarily where they're in the hospital, God forbid, or something, but but something long term. Um and they want, you know, guidance. And it, it, I mean I, I would like to think that I'm good at that in that I, I'm a good listener. I I certainly care. I think I'm sensitive. I have an empathy. 
but I'm not a counselor. You know, I, I want to be like that. Go, go call Emily. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, but even now, 15 years as being a rabbi, when someone says, you know, I'm going through something and, and, you know, I don't want congregates not to do that, but it's certainly not, it's not, it's still something that I don't feel super confident about. And it's also, um, it, it's just, it, it just, it's something I struggle with. And I, I think sometimes people put upon us experience or knowledge or wisdom that we don't have. And they put that on us simply because of the title of pastor, rabbi, clergy. Yeah, there was a, there's training in, in our seminary to refer. Like, it, yes, definitely sit with someone and always be really clear the difference between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a therapist, a counselor, and you. What are you, what is Absolutely. your role going to be with this person or this couple or this parent? What What is your role going to be here for you? And the thing I try to tell folk is, look, all of us have God language in us. What I'm going to do is try to help you figure out what your God language is. What, what do you think and who do you think God is? And who do you think God thinks you are? And then your actions and feelings that flow out of that. And we'll imagine those. I just want to make sure you have good healthy God language about who God is and who you are. And it, with those two things, you might get some freedom. Boy, we got some lightning and thunder going on up here. Woohoo! Oh, I hear I hear that. I... Yeah, boom, rumble. Wow. Uh, we're really close to the water up here. It's so cool. But we get these cool storms as well. So I, that's where I try to focus. And I try to make sure they know I'm not going to talk about family systems theory a whole lot with you. I studied it and I had to, but I'm not a pro right. at it, right? I'm not going to try to diagnose whether somebody is, I don't know, borderline personality disorder or bipolar or whatever. And I'm not even going to work too much on addiction issues with you. There are groups and pros out there for that. I just want you to tell me who you think God is and who you think you are in God's eyes. And, and we'll work on that. And if I find a lot of damage in folk from what other preachers have said. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And rabbis or who, spiritual leaders, people remember what a church or a church person or a spiritual leader said. And sometimes they will dare tell me what, how much it hurts that somebody said that a long time ago. And boy, that is holy ground when that's something I don't know if people understand is like the most holy moments for me is when somebody tells me what hurts and what, what they're mad about and what, what scares them. Because um, then I, I have a shot at not trying to give an answer, but but carry it with them and make sure that they know you, this is a community um, you don't have I was to. about to just I was just about to use the community word that that's exactly right I think people think that clergy have a better relationship with God than they do oh I'm so glad you said that I'm yes yes and thank you 
and I don't know how to say this, but I'll just try, right? I'm, I've never really tried verbalizing this publicly. Um, so God and I have a much deeper, longer relationship than we used to. And, and I have come to learn a lot more things about God and about me because of that expanded relationship. And I have decided, because of my ordination, to voice the company line sometimes, the, the theology that expresses what everybody agrees is the, the wise way to know who God is and what God wants. But sometimes Joel isn't, isn't personally okay with a company line about a certain issue. And I am, I argue it and I fight it and I debate it and I wrestle it and I pray it and, and I get mad at God about it and I get sad with God about it and I get impatient with God about it. Um, and, and I think that's okay. The Psalms tell me Laments and frustrations with God are two-thirds of life. Go for it. <laughs> so I'm totally okay with that. But I have a feeling people come to me and they're afraid to be angry at God to me. They're afraid to be frustrated or or doubt um, because they're sitting with a pastor and the pastor... Or they want the faith that the pastor has. And I'm like, trust me, you don't want this. This thing's... <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> this thing's a burden. Like, I, dad, come it. Like, I do believe, yeah. but dang it. I, there, there are days where I wish the, the belief would give me a break. It would let go. It would, it would let me rest and not see some of the well, sin and what, suffering. The, the same professor that said the thing about don't be an asshole used to also say, you know, the, this is hard. That's what. That's why I'll give you some some you know medicine on the side. Is because he he was a little more uh, specific and insert whatever nouns you'd like. But that when you start taking theology seriously, as one must as clergy, or at least as you know anyone that's worth their you know that has integrity, it's hard. There's pain involved. There's questioning. There's I don't want to say suffering. I mean suffering is a part of life, but. But dealing with how do we how do we fit suffering into our theology or teleology, another good uh, uh, clergy word, uh, which has to do with the God and the nature of evil or suffering, um, and, and those are those are really hard things. And you know, when, when you were talking, Joel, I was thinking of a, a corollary to that, which is what I find. Um, I don't necessarily find this with congregants, although every now and again, but certainly people that I meet that are Jews that, you know, um, just on the street or at a restaurant or something, they'll hear I'm a rabbi and like, oh, you probably don't want to talk to me. I'm a bad Jew. I never go to temple. And, you know, it's interesting because I I, I have a, a, a very beloved, one of my Favorite people in the congregation. They're all my favorite. But uh, I mean, someone I'm very close to in the congregation who, by their own admission, does not, quote unquote, attend that often. And yet they are so active in synagogue life between committees and leadership and generosity and just being an unbelievably kind and warm person. And it's like, I am not judging you 
by, you know, I don't have an attendance sheet of, okay, this person came to services last Friday, but not this Friday. Therefore, you know, they're not as, quote unquote, a good Jew. I come to, Go to what you like. Don't go to what you don't like to. I, I mean, I want us to provide a meaningful experience for you uh, as a congregant. Um, but if something is, quote unquote, not your thing, or if, if services aren't the way that you connect to Judaism, that's a better way to put it. You know, there are so many other ways. And this whole, oh, I'm a bad Jew. You Like, first of all, I'm probably in a social situation where that's not my, you know, I... I do have other things besides Judaism in my congregation to talk about and to, and to live, um, first of all. And second of all, I, I really don't think like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's that social situation, other things to think about. That was my other one. So, and this is a paradox, and I did not expect this as clergy, but sometimes I feel like I'm Neo in the Matrix, I walk into the world and I see the theological code everywhere. Everything I look at, I am wondering what that says about who God is and what God is doing. And and it's like the the zeros and ones are falling, right? The and and I'm constantly trying to ask God questions of the reality around me. Um, if I see a, a couple that are ribbing each other and teasing one another and, and, and then one of the barbs is a little sharp, right? I, I don't just think of that as a couple and a, a marriage issue. It's a God moment. Like, ooh, what's going on in there? What's that person's God language? What's that person's God language? Did they hear what they just did? How, how does that person think about their, their marriage? <laughs> and, and it just... It just rains down on me to where there, there are times where I, I can't shut it off. And it's, it's very frustrating. Like, I, I wish I could be naive again and not see everything through those lenses. Yes. And the other, the other paradox of that is, let's say that I grab one of those wild moments and I, I open a beer and I hop in a golf cart and we head to the first tee with a, and I go play with complete strangers so they won't know who I am, right? And I won't have to be on if it's a church member and sure as the world, I'm going to get to the third hole and the dude in the cart with me is going to say, so what do you do? And I've never lied about it. I've always told the truth. I'm a, I'm the pre- new Presbyterian pastor in town or whatever. And here we go. Like here we go. Oh, That's here, here we go. Right, and my best attempts to not have those lenses on. And this guy wants to tell me a story, like or let's something had, or what do you think about, or what? And I got to put the lenses back on for him. Now I love them, and sometimes they're exhausting. And I chose them, or they chose me, and they are who I am. But gosh, I just wish sometimes I could, I could almost forget that I have that responsibility for a while and uh, and see things as a just a dad, just a husband or whatever. This job comes home with me, calling, whatever it is. It comes home with me more than any other job. And it's harder it's harder to turn off than any other job. And I I understand that, but it's exhausting. 
Yes. Yeah. And it's it's to a certain degree, and I think you'll agree with this, it's what it should be. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not exhausting. Yeah, Jesus says this strange thing, and I'm this is the closest I can come to understanding it. Um he, he, he says something like, Take up your cross and follow me, the burden is light. And it, it, no, it's not. It's a freaking cross. It's heavy. Um, and and I know where it's headed. That's really heavy. No, I am not interested. But once you're doing it, the meaning of it is so deep and real that it, it has a an automatic food to it, an, an automatic nurturing, even all the while it's exhausting. I, it, maybe it's like runner's high, like... You run and run and run and run and run, and then this weird thing hits, and now you're running and you barely feel it. Yeah, that that one I don't understand. But I, <laughs> I have heard of it. I've never gotten it. I've had runners exhaustion. I've had runners I'm about to pass out, yeah. but not the runners high. Um, have you gotten... I don't know if this upsets me more or actually hurts me, but have you gotten feedback from congregants this year that's like, oh, we're not in church. He's not doing anything. He's not that busy. <laughs> no, they've seen it. Um, when we went COVID, so they saw me like invent slash create a way to do church immediately. Absolutely. Right. And I mean, I certainly with a large number of people, that is absolutely true. But there is a feeling, I mean, it's, it's true for our religious school director as well. Well, we can pay him less because he's not doing as much this year. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and so this just goes to what you said about um, that it is hard. And, you know, sometimes I find myself defensive isn't quite the right word. But, you know, so I meet once a week with our temple president. And so, um, you know, whoever that person is... I'll send him or her emails from congregants, both good and bad, you know, compliments and criticisms. And also just little updates, you know, just so you know this week, you know, I just want you to know I did this, you know. And But even, even they, like unless I literally provided a log of my time, which of course would prevent me from doing things, that, like n- nobody actually knows the extent of things. And I'm not, I'm not holding myself up as, you know, the, the, a hero, but it, it is somewhat deflating to, to think that some congregants think that, oh, not much is going on at Temple because the building is closed. Yeah. And, and I know that's affected a few of my colleagues as well. Um, yeah. I'm, without question. I don't ever feel like that stuff doesn't get me, but I have, I do have things that members have said to me that I can't unhear and they they just hold on for such a long time and it's amazing like I don't know what the compliment to critique ratio has to be but I I think it's something like infinity 100 to, to zero I think it's infinity <laughs> to one right like an infinite number of comments to one like dagger insult and the insult still is there I and no number of compliments can make it go away. Like it takes, I don't know what my bank is, but I probably got a, a pretty deep bank. 
insult me, critique me hard, um, 115 times, I'm still rolling for you. But somewhere around 120, I'm going to start to crumple. And somewhere around 150, I can't do this anymore. And I don't know where that number because is. It, it just, and, it, and that goes to that we are human beings, which, of course, I mean, it, it, it needs to be said sometimes. I mean, as, as much as I think clergy should be moral, you know, you talk about the, you know, a normal person, like, absolutely, we should have higher standards of morality and of kind of intellectual discourse and, and theological, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you're there. Um, you're, you're, you're fine. But like, yeah, I mean, but we, we have feelings and they get hurt. Uh, you know, some people will say, like, what, what makes a pastor or a clergy person happy? And I don't know if this is true for you, but if, if you let me keep my integrity, right? So I, I never have to sell out to make you happy, right? I, I can tell you what I really think I found in God, about God, in the text, from the text this week. And I might be wrong. But if you'll let me tell you it with integrity and compassion, and then you'll discuss it with me with equal integrity and compassion and not expect me to sell out to keep you happy, we can do this forever. And I will have a ball. Well, Joel, I am never breaking up with you. Oh. And... Your integrity is safe with me, my friend. <laughs> All right, we did it. Oh, this was fun. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today. And invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realigionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.